Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 1st of August, and I do hope you paid your taxes or filed your returns by the deadline or else. Anyway, our top stories and themes for the day. India has a looming exports challenge that is much closer to home than we think. Kotak Bank faces an interesting succession challenge and a possible face-off with regulator the Reserve Bank. Rainfall forecasts and numbers are now looking above normal and looking good for the country. Over 65 million taxpayers raised to file their returns on July 31st, the last day for doing so. This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. India's big exports challenge is actually closer home than the west. When it comes to exports in general or merchandise exports which are physical in nature, one assumes that a good part of it goes west. Actually that's not true. Some 33% of India's exports are actually to the Asia Pacific region. And for various reasons which we will come to, they're falling and quite sharply. Actually it's been falling since the pandemic, which according to rating agency Crisil could suggest a structural shift. This is also part of a report Crisil has just put out called quite ominously Beware the Pacific Headwinds and highlighting that the bigger exports challenge is closer home in the Asia Pacific region than on either side of the Atlantic. A quick backdrop, India's merchandise exports fell 22% year on year to 33 billion dollars in June thanks to a slowing global growth making it a contraction for 5 months now. China is actually not a major importer of Indian goods. Trade mostly flows the other way. So it is the non-China countries in the APAC region which are importing more from India. The reason is falling commodity prices which has according to Crisil substantially contributed to a fall in the dollar value of India's exports. Now the interesting contrast is this. India's exports to APAC fell by 11% in the last year to about 119 billion dollars while it grew by 3% to the United States and 15% to the European Union. The other interesting point is that falling commodity prices are reducing value of exports as we said but also helping Indian companies because their input costs are lower and thus shoring up their bottom lines and by extension their stock prices. I reached out to Crisil chief economist DK Joshi who authored this report and began by asking him what was the share of India's exports to the APAC region versus the rest of the world. Well I think the share of Asia was around 33% which has now fallen to about 26%. Share of US eurozone together is around 34%. Rest of the world is around 30%. So our exports to Asia are still quite sizable but they have been slowing down the fastest. And why is that happening? Well I think there are two factors. One is the price factor which is common across exports to all the regions i think the prices of many products which had risen last year have corrected this year so that reduces the dollar value of our exports also i think together with that there is some slowdown in some parts of the world so as a consequence uh, the volume of exports is also slowing down and we found that during april to may this year 40 out of the 70 export items had uh, declined in volume terms and what's the overall impact if one could call it that because obviously lower commodity prices in the export context mean lower value but they also benefit us because that means lower input costs companies are benefiting because their margins are better and so on and of course consumers 
Yes, I think that's right. And uh, the the net result of this is that we get a lower current account deficit because our imports have also become cheaper. Our exports prices have fallen, but the gap between exports and imports, uh, including services, is the current account deficit, which is now expected to be around 1.8% in this current fiscal year. So it has reduced the requirement of foreign funds to finance the current account deficit. So you say you said that one third of our exports are to the APAC region, which I think would be a bit of a surprise to some people at least. And within that, which are the top countries? Well, I think uh, it is quite evenly distributed. Uh, our maximum exports go to China, which is uh, around only three point four percent. Then I think the next are Bangladesh, Singapore, Indonesia. I think they are almost evenly distributed now. The slowdown from our exports is largely to Northeast Asia, which includes uh, China, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, etc. And it's not so much to the ASEAN countries. Even in the South Asian neighbors, our exports have slowed down. We export to Nepal, to Bangladesh also. I think that's where the slowdown is more prominent. And how do you see this playing out in coming months or uh, at least the rest of the year? Well, I think there is a challenge for exports because in the second half of this year, the West is expected to slow down, although it has been quite resilient till now. Also, I think the Asian economies, excluding China, are also expected to slow down. So I think promoting exports in this environment will remain a challenge this year. And finally, you talked about these 40 out of 75 commodities declining on year. What are the key commodities that we export to, again, the APAC countries? As I said, I think it's a broad basket. I think China, our major export destination in Asia, I think we export mostly raw materials, etc. And we get finished products from there. We're not a major exporter of finished products to this region. Got it. Uh, DK, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Speaking of dollar values, India's foreign exchange reserves have dropped by around $2 billion to $607 billion for the week ended July 21st. Earlier reserves had gone up by about $13 billion to touch $609 billion in the previous week. Now, as a background, India hit an all-time high in forex reserves in October 2021 when it touched $645 billion. It began declining after that when the Reserve Bank started using up dollars to defend the rupee, which was falling. Meanwhile, amongst things that are rising, the markets rose again yesterday, reflecting optimism from global markets. The BSE Sensex was up 367 points to close at 66,528. The Nifty 50 ended up 108 points at 19,754. Both the Sensex and Nifty have now gained around 2.7% or a little under 3% in July. An interesting report in the Wall Street Journal overnight says the extra reward for holding stocks instead of bonds there has fallen to its lowest level in 20 years. This, it says, would threaten a recent hot streak for major indices. One method for gauging the value of stocks is to compare their earnings yield calculated by dividing a company's expected earnings over the next year by its stock price. Two, the yield on government bonds considered the closest thing to a risk-free return. The difference, sometimes called the equity risk premium, shows how much investors are being compensated for the additional risk of owning stocks. And right now, that isn't much, says the WSJ. The gap between the earnings yield of the S&P 500 and the yield on the 10-year US government bond dropped to around 1.1 percentage point last week, its narrowest since 2002. So not to dwell too much on this right now, but it does suggest that money could either go chasing better returns in other markets, like emerging markets, if it's the same pool, or maybe just switch to bonds. 
depending of course how investors are feeling particularly from a risk point of view back home results season is still on with numbers still reflecting an underlying strength in consumption india's largest car maker maruti suzuki reported a standalone net profit that was up 45% at around 2485 crores for the quarter ended june 2023 this was attributed to higher sales improved realization cost reduction and higher non operating income sequentially the company's net profit was however down slightly from the previous quarter standalone revenue for the first quarter was up 22% to around 32000 crores driven by sales of close to half a million cars or 500000 cars up 6.4% compared to last year Kotak Bank faces a succession challenge A bank is a bank not a company is the moral of the story Uday Kotak started Kotak Mahindra as a non-bank finance company in 1985 with a foray into the bill discounting business. He went on to a range of financial products and services often in step with the opening of the market for them like lease and hire purchases of vehicles, auto finance, investment banking and finally a bank in 2003 becoming the first non-bank finance company to become one. At the time there were many aspirants for the bank license and while some objective criteria for awarding the license was clear and still is there is some subjectivity as well in the central bank or the reserve bank of india's decisions and these decisions go always take an example of a license that's worked out in a manner of speaking indusind bank got a license to start a bank in 1994 the move came as a surprise then to many because the hinduja family was backing it and the rbi's position in general has been not to give any industrial family a bank and yet they did back to kotak uday kotak has run the bank since 2003 taking it to well levels that have kept shareholders and the stock markets happy growing along the way organically and inorganically like through a merger with ing vaisya bank at this point uday kotak has been running the bank for more than 18 years as ceo now the problem is that the reserve bank has now capped bank ceo tenures to 15 years and classically will ask the banks to suggest three names in order of preference to choose the next ceo the reserve bank has discretionary powers to decide who the ceo of a bank can be and can also reject names that are put forward as it's happened we will come to the how and why shortly the day before news reports quoting sources emerged suggesting that reserve bank had communicated to kotak bank that they would like someone from outside kotak bank to run it as opposed to the names suggested kotak bank denied this resoundly yesterday saying that there was no approach formally or informally to anyone in its system management or board from the reserve bank that is the hitch of course is that uday kotak has already been elected as a board member and would thus continue in that role even if an external ceo were to come in now if someone from within was promoted then the same team would continue so to speak with of course switched roles the current kotak board has a mix of mostly finance veterans including from within the company apart from uday shankar former ceo of star india and ashok gulati the economist and columnist The larger question of course is how should one view such a situation where the shareholders would obviously prefer continuity for matters of stock price business continuity and maybe even heart while the reserve bank would like to take a firmer possibly rules based approach i reached out to himendra hazari an independent research analyst specialized in banking and microeconomy and who tracks private banks quite closely i began by asking him how he was seeing the current situation at kotak bank the idea of succession man is that the board should have had couple of candidates in Dunedin ready to succeed within Kotak that is the way the domination and representation of the key of any power would conduct 
such a pet, especially when you know that the existing CEO is bad to step down. In the case of Kotak Mahindra Bank and Uday Kotak, it is more complex because Uday Kotak is a founder or a promoter CEO. He's been in that position for nearly 20 years. And it is highly unusual. And I think it violates the spirit of corporate governance that when such a CEO steps down, he should come back to the board as a non-independent, non-executive capacity. Because the concern that stakeholders will have, and definitely the regulator will have, that such an individual spent such a long time at the CEO's force and has the largest equity holding in the company would effectively be engaging in backseat driving. And that would be all the more problematic if an internal candidate was being selected to the seat. Yes. So, Hemi, the conceptual question here. Now, the shareholders have obviously elected Uday Kotak to be back on the board. And quite likely, they would want someone that he appoints or anoints as his successor because they would want continuity and the kind of performance, the good performance, let's say, in the stock markets that the company has been showing. So how does the Reserve Bank classically reconcile these two potentially conflicting situations? Again, in a bank, it is different than a normal non-bank or a non-leveraged company. In that, the largest stakeholders in banks are depositors and not shareholders. Because even if one has 100% ownership of the equity, still be a minority stakeholder in the company. Because deposits are not many times the equity holding. Therefore, the funds that banks deploy, only a marginal component of that is equity fund. The bulk is from unsecured depositors. Therefore, unlike any other non-bank companies, shareholder approval may not be a sufficient criteria for the regulator to approve it. Indeed, that is why you have a regulator in banking, and that is why banking is so strictly regulated. Because even in the case if shareholders were to approve, the RBI by law has the right not to approve the CEO and the chairman of the board. So this is different than from other non-banking companies where in such cases the shareholder approval would be paramount and would be supreme. But here it requires, and very rightly so, it requires the approval of the Reserve Bank of India as the banking recommendation. And I mean, the Reserve Bank can go in that direction too. I mean, isn't it? I mean, take Technically, you're saying that, okay, they have the right to refuse or to accept. So they could very well accept someone who is a successor who's appointed by the existing or the, or the incumbent CEO. Normally, they accept it. But, you know, there were two cases which I think one has to recollect. One is that Shitikai Sarba, the board had approved her, you know, the, I think her fourth or fifth alien, and the RBI rejected it. In the case of Rana Kapoor, the board had approved his continuance, but the RBI had rejected it. So very clearly, when it comes to banks, RBI does have a significant and a very major role to play in the appointment of the CEO 
and is the chairman of the board. Now, the RBI can approve and shareholders can reject. That's another combination. But in this particular case, uh, that is not the issue here, as it was in another small private bank case. And, and what happened eventually in that case? Well, that case, it is now ongoing. But, uh, that is also an unusual case. And even if the RBI were to select a CEO, uh, the shareholders can uh, reject it. You study banks and uh, the functioning of banks quite closely. If you look at, let's say, appointments of CEOs in previous cases, I mean, what are the common factors that you've noticed in the way that RBI takes its decisions on this matter? When a bank is smoothly functioning and there's no problem, normally they would approve an internal candidate, as would be in the case of, say, Kotak Mahindra Bank, because on the the fundamentals, there doesn't seem to be a problem at all. When there is a problem in the bank, for whatever reason, like say in the case of Yes Bank, there they will prefer and they will signal to the board that they would prefer an outside candidate. Now that is what is very interesting, that if this Bloomberg story is accurate and the RBI is telling the KFB that we would like an outside candidate, that means they have indeed some very significant concern that they are not confident of an internal vote of money in their candidate. Now, that is a very serious issue. And we have to try to understand why is it that the banking regulator not demonstrating the confidence uh, that the board itself has demonstrated. Because I would mean that in a board, one of its candidates out of the three that they suggest to the RBI are internal candidates. And again, your sense on continuity or the importance of management continuity in a bank's success, looking at maybe the last decade or two. It is extremely important that you have continuity because, you see, a new person, especially coming from outside, you don't know what his strategy would be. Maybe have a very different strategy from what the earlier CEO had. But normally, if, you know, if it's an internal candidate, that person has worked with, the previous year, there would be continuity in the broad strategy. The markets would be familiar with that individual. But in this case, this is highly unusual because here there are definitely some reservations that the Reserve Bank of India is having, and that might move disruptive in both of my the bank. But Hemida, that's our assumption, right? That the I mean, assumption based on a story that there is some reservation. Otherwise, we don't know. And I'll tell you why there is this assumption, because this is a highly unusual case where the existing promoted CEO was been in that position for, say, nearly 20 years. 18 plus, yeah. Yeah, instead of stepping down from the board, he's coming back onto the board with shareholder approval as a non-independent, non-executive director. And therefore... There is an apprehension, and definitely this is the concern that I as an analyst also have, that such a promoter who will come back on the board as a non-executive role does definitely can play the role of a backseat driver, which is not required and not warranted at all in any company east of Warner Bay. Got it. Eminta, thank you so much for joining me. Okay. Meanwhile, some macro numbers from the economy and some other numbers in general 
The macro numbers, India's core sector, which has a weight of about 40% in the Index of Industrial Production, or IIP, has grown at 8.2%, over 13% that was last year. BOB Research, which has collated the figures, points out that with the exception of crude oil, which declined marginally, growth has been broad-based, thus reflecting the buoyancy in the infrastructure sector this year. Among sectors that grew strongly were steel, which grew 22%, and cement at 9.4%, thanks in some ways to the government's push on infrastructure. And then it's tax. If parts of the economy are doing well, incomes must be doing well too. Actually, scratch that. You have to file a return whether you earn more or less or nothing at all. So the push seems to be working with overall numbers likely to be higher for the last financial year, that's 22-23, as taxpayers raced to meet the 31st July deadline, hoping against hope, of course, that the government would provide an extension. The numbers had crossed 65 million and were inching towards 70 million last evening. So how do the overall tax numbers look and what can we take away at this point? I reached out to Arun Anandgiri, editor of Tax Sutra, well-known tax affairs portal, and began by asking him how he was analyzing taxpayer response so far, particularly in context of overall tax numbers in India. You know, usually, till the last minute, there's always this thing of there will be an extension, there will be an extension because there haven't been enough returns filed. But this time, the department seems quite determined not to extend the last date because they feel that, that a good number of returns have been filed up to now. That is, almost 6.5 crore returns have been filed and it's clocking 4 lakh income tax returns an hour now on the last day. The larger point, Govind, is the tax-to-GDP ratio in the country abysmally low and that is what I think the department wants to really correct. You look at other countries, you look at the personal tax collections, the developed economies versus the personal tax collections here in India. Uh, you know, the personal tax collections of around roughly 6.5 lakh crore equals the corporate tax collection of 6.5 lakh crore. But overall, 7 crore taxpayers returns filed on the higher side versus a population of 140 crore and look at the tax buoyancy ratios. Is the department happy? Yes. But in the last 10 years, the collections have been off the roof in many ways. And how would you compare this figure that you were saying, which is almost uh, 7 crore or 70 million for this year uh, with previous years? Previous year, were a little over 6 crore and total number of ITRs filed by individuals in the age bracket of 18 to 35 years was a little over 2 crore. Is that the takeaway that more young people are filing returns? Absolutely. More younger people are filing returns. And if you look at the overall tax collection and how it's gone over the last 10 years, I just try to give you some sense of where we are heading. For a long period of time, these were the days going when we were just started to reporting on tax reporting 18, 19 years back. At that time, the indirect tax collections used to be massive, used to contribute a lot. But look at the direct tax collections now. The direct tax collections in the last 10 years have gone up from 6,38,000 crores to 14 lakh crores till FY21-22. That's a huge increase of 121%. This is corporate and personal tax, both. The worry is that the tax-to-GDP ratio has gone up by just about 0.35% in these 10 years. 5.62% to 5.97%. And this is what is worrying. The tax-to-GDP ratio in most developed economies would be in the double digits. The department is trying to put a positive spin, saying that the tax buoyancy is at 2.52 which is the highest tax buoyancy recorded over the last 15 years. 
one point I'd like to highlight here that a lot of people feel that the lower the tax rate, higher the compliance, higher the collection. So is there a case that the highest tax slab can be further brought down now for the HNI? It's almost at 39-40%. You know, a lot of us are in the 30% bracket plus surcharge says and all. So is there a case for maybe reducing it and then trying to see where it goes? I think these are the interesting parts. But we must not forget that we started with 2.5 lakhs tax lab and now almost till 7, 7.5 lakh there is no tax. So we have come a long way in the last 18 years. Okay. Last question, Arun. For those who did not meet or could not meet the 31st July deadline, what do they do? You can still pay till December with a fine of 5,000 rupees. And if there is tax payable, interest on that and penalty on that uh, tax, uh, interest for sure. But if you don't file your income tax returns by December, you will have a sword of an income tax prosecution notice come. And those are criminal proceedings. So do file your returns if you not file today. For whatever reason you've not filed it, 31st July, at least file it by 31st December with a fine of 5,000 and whatever interest is payable on tax. You must file your returns. That's the message for us. Got it. Arun, thank you so much for joining us. It's raining taxes and it's raining too. The Indian Meteorological Department is forecasting that the country will most likely see normal rainfall during the second half of the monsoon season, that's August and September. It's said that normal to above normal rainfall is very likely over East Central India, parts of the East and Northeast region and most subdivisions along the Himalayas. While India recorded 13% excess rainfall in July, East and Northeast regions of the country gauged the third lowest precipitation in the month since 1901, the chief of the IMD said. So India did see a turnaround in monsoon rains from a 9% deficit in June to 13% excess in July. El Nino, warming of the waters in the Pacific Ocean near South America, has not affected monsoon rains so far, a phenomenon that was expected and feared. Meanwhile, BOB Research says the Met's latest data for 30th July shows that cumulative rainfall for the country is now 6% above normal, which is not only a good sign but means that you can put worries of a deficient monsoon behind you, at least for now. Only six divisions covering 15% of India are in deficient categories and seven states are in deficit. The numbers become important while trying to assess sowing patterns. BOB Research says pulses continue to have lower acreage, which could have some impact on inflation. Pulses, which include Urad Dal and Thur Dal and are a household staple in India, are already over 10% in inflation now. Well, that's it from me for today. Have a great day ahead. Feel free to reach out. Thank you for all your comments and feedback, which as always, make our day. Bye for now. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core dot in. Thank you for listening.